Welcome to the New York Institute for Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. Benjamin Moser's 2009 biography of the Brazilian writer Clarice Lispector was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. He has been a book critic for Harper's Magazine and the New York Times Book Review, and in 2019 published a biography of Susan Sontag, which was one of the most discussed books of the year. Ben, welcome to the podcast. So great to have you here. Thank you. Maybe we could talk a bit about craft. You did hundreds of interviews, 300 or something. 573. 573. People. But who's counting? Uh, I didn't count that. Somebody (laughs) wrote that to me and I sort of liked it. And that's just people. That's not interviews. Some people I interviewed 10, 20 times. Right. You become very close to people. Not always, but some of them. That's pretty extraordinary because, I mean, there is enough literature there that one could imagine doing a biography of Susan Sontag based on the diaries and the books and the published reviews and things like that. What made you want to reach out to so many people? That's interesting. Nobody's asked me that. And I would say that it's because you want to write about the person and the way that you get to a person and get to understand a person is by knowing, talking to people who knew that person. You can't do it with Abe Lincoln. You can't do it with certain people. But in fact, Sontag there's a lot of people that knew her and they're all around and they're many of them are sick or dead actually. And that's one of the things that you have a responsibility as a biographer when you're at this point, you know, so Susan would be looking at 90 now. So anybody who's older than she was is dead. And most of her contemporaries are, are dead or dying. I've done this before. I, I wrote the book about Clarice Lispector and she died relatively young. I mean, she died at age 56, but in 1977, So those people were still around, and that was more than 10 years ago, and most of them are now dead. And most of those people really want to talk to you. That's a funny thing you learn. You feel that you're bothering people, but you're not actually. You're bothering some people, but not everybody. A lot of people, actually, nobody asks them. Or they have this one little anecdote. But then if you keep talking to them, you really get something. Well, that is the thing that always surprises me the most, and I try to convey to my students who, as you say, believe no one's going to want to talk to them, is that... The biggest problem in journalism is getting people to stop That's unbelievable. Nobody ever told me that. I'm glad you tell people that because it's something that you're timid, you know, especially when you're writing something that is so intimate. You know, when you write a biography, even the stuff that might not seem intimate to you, because obviously when people think about intimacy and pushy, inappropriate personal questions, they almost always think about sex. Fascinatingly, yet predictably, now that I'm middle-aged, I think, okay, Sex, eh, nobody minds talking about that. We've all had some breakups. We've had some relationships. We've had some things we probably shouldn't have done. The real intimate stuff is stuff you never expect. So in my previous biography, I quoted a poet talking about Clarissa's clothes, saying she was she wore um, out of fashion clothes because she, were, she got divorced and she stopped traveling and she didn't have as much money and her clothes kind of started looking a little shabby. Well, I mean, people were absolutely livid about that. And I had all these horrible things in the book that I thought everybody was going to be upset about. And and they were upset about things you couldn't predict. It's not that you want them to shut up. It's that at a certain point, you as a human can only take in so much. So I have all these interviews on my computer. I recorded them all and I transcribed them all. And I have tens of thousands of pages of Susan Sontag's life and times of which 10% 10% is is not 10%, way less, I would say. So you recorded all your interviews mm-hmm. and then you transcribed them yourself? No. So the previous book I did um, in Brazil, 
so part of my family are Jewish refugees. My, my grandfather was a German refugee who came to this country in the 30s. And so I knew a lot of those people. Clarissa Spector's family were Russian, Ukrainian Jews who came to Brazil in the 20s. And I know those people and I know their mentality, old Jewish refugees. It's a very specific thing. You know, they're very nice and they're very welcoming and they're very polite, but they're very guarded with people they don't know. And it's because they never really know what you're asking and who you are. And so, you know, you have to go. I mean, it's like being with my grandmother and like eating her cake and drinking Diet Coke and having more cake and having some more Diet Coke and talking about the weather. And that's how they're kind of feeling you out. Well, I mean, the Sontag world, there's no feeling them out. They, you just like stuck a microphone in their face. You know, with the, the people in Brazil, I didn't write down anything mm. because I knew, I thought, God, if somebody, if some kid from another country came to my grandmother's house and started asking her personal questions about her family and stuff, she would have zipped up so fast. So I trained myself just to talk and to remember things. But with Sontag, I knew because they're Americans and because I know how Americans are. Americans love to talk about themselves, particularly this sort of people like New York cultural figures. And I was more comfortable. So I, I but I decided to pay people. I paid an online service a dollar a minute, thousands and thousands yeah, of dollars. So I sure. thought I will go mad if I have to transcribe all this. How did you decide who to interview in what order? Well, so first I did it geographically. You know, I live in Europe, so... I interviewed a lot of people in Paris and London and then also in Sarajevo, which was a fascinating trip. Uh, Sweden, where she made movies, uh, Germany, Italy. Um, that's pretty easy because that's limited. You know, she didn't really live there. She just went there and she did something. So you find this person and then the rest of it, for me, it's always worked that I'll go visit so-and-so and they'll say, oh, you know, you should talk to my neighbor. She knew Susan really well. And then you go to the neighbor and might not be someone you've ever heard of. And then the neighbor will say, oh, you know, nobody ever talks to so-and-so who lives down the street. It's a community. Even if the people often hate each other, which is often true in the Sontag world, they just would cut each other's throats in a minute. But like you get to know the lay of the land. So that's another reason why interviewing is really essential. You don't know what you're going to get. I've had experiences where I've spent thousands of dollars flying to God knows where, and I've gotten absolutely nothing. And I get back to my hotel and I think, wow, that was a terrible waste of time. And then I've had people who I had no reason to expect would have anything interesting to contribute who turn out to be fascinating. Well, that's why it's fun. That's why it's also kind of a social endeavor. My priority when I write this kind of book is I want her personality to come out. I want her to be someone people can understand and identify with emotionally. And I also, through that, I want her artistic and cultural and intellectual legacy to be palatable to people. I think if you only write it from an angle of cultural, intellectual importance, you lose a lot of people who will just be intimidated or just might not read it. It's kind of like putting the spinach in the brownies, you know, mm -hmm. what people yes. do for kids sometimes. <laughs> I try to, like, put in thoughts about metaphor among descriptions of Vanity Fair photo shoots, which right. I think is kind of subversive. In preparation for this, I went back and read all the reviews, and there was just sort of these sort of moments of bad faith, such as when someone will say, why didn't he spend more time describing what she was like when she worked? And I'm thinking to myself, that's just ridiculous. You don't, you don't want that. No one wants that. And, right. and it, it's essentially, and, and in, in actually in describing 
that the fact that she needed to have people around when she worked, that to me said everything about it. That's fascinating. I can't imagine. Um, yeah, that is an interesting critique because, of course, I do have that in there um, quite a lot. And, and the way that she worked was very, uh, was very different. It was very strange, and it's actually kind of hard to account for for me as a writer. I would love to live inside a radio studio with no noise. I would actually like to write by hand if I could. My fantasy is like living in a radio studio with a legal pad and just shutting out all that noise. So I'm fascinated by that aspect of her sociability that that tends, that verges onto this desperate neediness. Because I think that for a writer, everyone knows that that isolation and that need to focus is, it's it's our great desire and it's our great fear. It seems like she had that fear in a larger dose than I ever anticipated. There's so few commonalities among writers. One of them is they generally spend a lot of time alone. And right. probably if they're happy in their careers like that, right. I didn't get the feeling she liked being alone at all. She couldn't be alone. Um, she was absolutely terrified of being alone. And she says this in her journals. She says she would rather live with anybody picked at random out of a Chinese restaurant than, she, than live alone. And so that's very dramatic. I don't mind being alone. I like not being part of a scene. I like being able to come in and out of my personal life and my professional life being to some degree separate. I'm fascinated by that aspect of her. In some ways, you're, you're, you really are sort of the anti-Sontag who was constantly trying to sort of integrate her reputation and her life and her work and the scene and the people around her. You know, there was this idea that it was like a, a, a top spinning. She never wanted to stop. Well, I think she's a cautionary tale in that sense. I think that if you're a writer... And you see the temptations of that stuff. Um, of course, it's fun to go to the opera and it's fun to see movies and it's fun to hang out with your friends and it's fun to go to dinner and it's fun to have 25 different lovers at the same time. But it's kind of hard to also write the essay about Simone Weil if you're doing all that stuff. And she managed to do it um, up to a certain point, but you see that it takes a real toll on her emotionally and, and physically and you wish almost that she had just moved to Vermont at some point. Did a Solzhenitsyn. Or even like a Willem de Kooning and like lived in the Hamptons in a like house on the beach and came into the city during the week or something. But at the same time, her energy and her dynamism were so appealing to people and allowed her to do things. I'm in awe of how much she achieved. And especially when you think how much other, you know, she was really good at wasting time. Mm -hmm. Um, she could go to four movies a day. I don't know how she did that. I mean, I, if I go to one movie a week, I feel sort of like I'm saturated. Right. Well, you're not the omnivore she, she was. I mean, no. So you've done these, these 500 some odd interviews. You've, you've recorded them. You've had them transcribed. You've looked at them. How did you organize your material? Well, this time I used Scrivener, which I thought was really useful. What I would do is after I would get the transcriptions, I would go through them and I would bold anything I thought was interesting or relevant. And then just on a first glance. But the thing is, with the biography, this book took seven years. So you don't remember what somebody told you six years ago in paragraph 48B of your transcription. So I would go back again and when I was actually writing about that time or that place and I would find all these things that I'd really missed the first time. You kind of sift through it. So that becomes really interesting because that is why it feels like archaeology, even of your own material, 
because it's too much. Somebody like Sontag, it's such a wide life that you can't really keep it all in your head. All biographies are to some, the conceit is chronology. We right. live chronological lives. And, and the, the book certainly starts with her birth, more or less, and ends with her death. But in between, it's very thematic. There are many chapters, and you give each of them a title. What, what does that say about the way you about the way you approached her life and the way you wrote the book? Well, it's interesting that that's one of the arts of the biographer is how do you create a narrative out of something that doesn't have a narrative? A life does not have a narrative. That's not how we live. We do things because we can or because we have to or because something bad happens to us or because something good happens to us. And, and we always are thinking about how, and Sontag particularly, but I do it too. I mean, I'm, you know, planning this and, and should I do that? And should I, the thing is, you know, when you actually go through a life as a biographer does, you realize how little agency people actually have. How much is chance? It's all chance. I mean, some of it is talent and some of it is, is luck and some of it is bad luck. And, but basically, um, you see how little people know about themselves intellectually and emotionally, but also how people really don't see things coming. You see them coming because you know what happens. End up with so-and-so that she was dating in 1963 that she was really excited about. And you know that's not going to work out. She doesn't know it. So you're obliged to put a narrative into something that, that's very amorphous. And that's the narrative art of the biographer that's very subtle in a way. People assume it's chronological. I'm glad you didn't assume it's chronological. My book, it's not chronological at all. I mean, you have to choose a few images and a few themes and hope that they'll stick in the mind of the reader. Some of the things that I hammer on about, I hammer on about because those are my own interests. Uh, my previous book was also about metaphor, for example. I think another thing that made it readable for me was that it's a very personal book, not personal in the sense of you know, Susan Sontag, my icon who I've been dreaming of my mm. whole life, but you feel comfortable working out issues, working out things that you're annoyed about or pleased about, or it doesn't feel like a book from an official source. Well, it's not. It's another thing that biographers often encounter is that people think that the book is about Susan Sontag. It is, sort of, but in the way that a historical novel is also about something. Um, it's my book, and it's interested in the things that I'm interested in. And the reason I write it about her is that there's a lot there that she and I share. And then there's also a lot of areas of disagreement and of things that she couldn't understand because of where she was from, for example. The time that she was born, certain scientific or medical things, for example, her approach to cancer as a curse for a badly lived life. I was born the year after she got cancer. So we have that little overlap there, but I had never, ever, ever heard that cancer was a, a moral for sexual repression or the badly lived life. So reading this, I think, God, that's really fascinating. Like, I didn't know that. Other stuff I did know, but you realize that as much as she's emerging from a culture that's very similar to my culture, but then you're also constantly astonished by how many things that for me are very obvious were not obvious for her and for people of her time. The example of illness as metaphor is a mm. good one. We actually, at the uh, Institute podcast, took the lectures she gave of yeah. illness as metaphor. What comes across in the, in the book and comes across in the reading is something you alluded to earlier, the sense of not knowing what's next. I mean, she's writing this book to figure out what she thinks, right? trying to understand how our culture came to the point where we equated illness and the badly lived life. Right. 
not quite knowing where it's going to end up. And I think that one of the critical mistakes people make in general, but certainly of hers, is this Whiggish idea that we all know where it's going to end up. And why are you criticizing that? Everybody knows. Everyone knows. Yeah. You see that in politics, too. I was talking to my sister last night about the Democratic Party and... Your sister ran for... She ran for Congress, and she had she was a victim of the exact same thing that they did to Bernie Sanders yesterday, which is the corporate wing of the Democratic Party ganging up on a candidate with actual ideas and who who is a challenge to the old guard that does not win elections, and that has brought us to where we have come. And there's a sense in a certain world of the progressive political Twitter, let's say, that, oh, everybody knows that. It's all the party bosses in Washington. And she was saying people actually don't know that. They really think that Democrats stand for freedom and democracy instead of corporate consulting contracts. And with Sontag, it's very similar that people in her world now, or people who are sort of Sontag adjacent, let's say, they think, oh, well, everybody knows that. And it's absolutely not true. And one of the things that's very untrue is that people have not read Susan Sontag. Um, that's really something that I hoped through talking about her life and, and her times that people would approach her work. People haven't read her work. She's a name. She's a quote. Uh, she's a poster like Che Guevara. People know very little about her. And I was actually really surprised by that because in my world, I thought, you know, people talk about her. She's a figure that, that people, but as soon as you scratch the surface, you realize people really don't know much about her. And one of the things that I think that she did so fabulously well, and that I think one of the reasons I feel confident in going in, in debating her in the book and not accepting everything she says is that first of all, she didn't do that for herself. She was constantly revising her own thought. She was not this rigid figure that people thought she was. They were intimidated by her, so they thought, oh, well, she's always right, and they projected all this stuff onto her. In fact, if you read her journals, if you read her letters, if you read her writing chronologically, she's not the certain kind of Statue of Liberty figure. She's a constantly evolving figure, and I thought that it's a form of respect for me to debate her and to point out where I think she's wrong. And I think that it throws light on how many things she was right about also. Well, it's so boring to be right all the time. It's right. like some prissy school marm figure. It's a know-it-all figure. You know, Sontag's not a know-it-all figure. People right. projected that onto her. Yeah. They thought, oh, the smartest woman in America or whatever. She got really annoyed when people said that. I got the feeling also in some of those encounters that you chronicle that it was exactly that kind of frustration where she realized if the first thing you said to her was, I love notes on camp, right. that probably meant you haven't read anything else by right. her, and you might not even have read notes on camp. Sontag was a diva. I mean, let's not make any mistake. I like divas. I don't mind it at all. Certain people thought that I was criticizing her. I mean, yeah, she was somebody, especially as she got older, who could be extremely cruel. She could be really obnoxious. She could be really grandiose. For some reason, that bothers other people more than it bothers me. I'm approaching her in a lot of ways, but I'm also approaching her as a, as a character. She's an unbelievably fascinating character. And was she complicated? And was she sometimes wrong? Was she sometimes right? Yeah. But there's an idea of, you know, Minnesota nice, just as we're in an election. Like, Sontag was not Minnesota nice. She was New York mean. Sometimes. And sometimes she was a hero. And, and, and I feel like anybody who 
has any experience of having more than one aspect to their personality doesn't find that so strange. But I think that one of the things that's funny about her is that she is all these things. She's just more. She's larger than life. And and the diva is somebody who is larger than life, who is not just your average lady living in Chelsea. One of the things that was exciting to read this book and read the reviews of it was it seems it, it's rarer and rarer that there are books or pieces of music or dance performances or movies that stir and inspire a kind of conversation about who we are now, we being, you know, intellectuals thinking about the world, not necessarily academic specialists, but someone who sort of has a broader view and is thinking about the role of the so-called public intellectual. And this book was an occasion for all sorts of the, some of the most brilliant writers to weigh in on that. It was clear that Everyone has his or her own Sontag. I'd love to hear what you think about that and also hear who your Sontag is. Well, that's a great question. I think that what you see in a lot of the reviews, positive, negative, in between, was that people are very attached to their image of her. They are very wed to a certain idea that they have of her that may or may not have any relation to reality. But they're also very wedded to this idea of what a woman is supposed to be, what you can say about a woman. That's an interesting new thing that I think is I, I didn't experience in my first biography. But also, where are we as intellectual culture? And I think that my Sontag is a questing figure. She's an insecure figure. She is a hungry figure. She's somebody who isn't one thing or the other, which is really interesting and really fertile. It also means that she doesn't really know who she is. And this comes out in her sexuality in a way that I find absolutely lacerating. I find it tragic and terrible and sad. She's a figure that we return to if we do actually return to her and not to the images that we might have of her. That's incredibly productive for us as thinkers and writers. So there's 573 people I talk to. Every one of them has their thought. And some of them are really hater. Some of them really just abjectly worship her. A lot of them, interestingly enough, I think both, you know, they see her flaws and they see her attributes and, and they, they don't necessarily need to come down on a side. And I think that I'm in favor of portraying her as a complex three-dimensional figure but I would love for people to actually read her books and then have an opinion about her and actually know what they're talking about, because that's something that I encountered was not always the case. One impression I came away with, which I didn't expect, was an appreciation for how American she was, mm. what an American character she was, not only the trope of going from the hinterlands to the center, right. but also this constant reinvention, the experimenting with all sorts of excesses and uh, and then coming to a kind of, in a non-pejorative sense, liberal view of the world. Right. Uh, the fact that her, you know, among her last books is in America. Yeah. I never thought that I would think of someone as exotic as Susan Sontag as mm. a quintessential American character. It's so funny. So I've lived in Europe for most of my life, well, half my life. Uh, I come from Texas. Uh, I lived here for a long time. I, I have a very clear sense of Americans as someone who has not always lived among Americans and who knows that Americans are not the default. 
race in the world. And so when I look at Sontag, I see a creation, not only of this country, but of this country at its highest imperial moment. I see America at its most certain, its most arrogant, its most influential, its most ideal in the sense of the ideals that we look at in this city, the Statue of Liberty, the Metropolitan Museum, the United Nations, America as mother of exiles. She is all of those figures, and I think she's not somebody, as much as Americans thought of her as sort of vaguely Parisian or whatever, there's absolutely nothing European about her at all, in the sense that there's nothing European about Edith Wharton. Edith Wharton is a rich lady from New York, even though she spends how many years there? You know, Gertrude Stein, and these are people who are expats. I mean, Susan lived in New York, and I feel that her confidence in a certain way and her cultural centrality that she managed to occupy all over the world is something that no American can actually really appreciate now. I think that the prestige of America has fallen so dramatically. She's really a creature, as you're saying, of the Cold War. I mean, this sort of post-World yes. War II America, the greatest you know, creation of wealth in human history between right. 45 and, say, 89, that she's coasting on and the, the prestige uh, of it. As you say, there's a kind of vaguely European new wave sort of feel to her because of the way she dresses and the fact she's making movies and them. Right. But that's very American in the sense of like New Yorkers who love Khmer sculpture. Right. You know, or Lebanese food. Right. It's it's sort of the cosmophage, but in its most materialist manifestation of, you know, here my clothes are from Japan and my coffee is from Malaysia or whatever. I mean, this is very... Typical, like somebody told me yesterday that she has hand sanitizer from Stockholm. And I thought that was like such an American thing to say. Yeah. yeah. It's like people in Europe just, they don't really think about like where the hand sanitizer is from because it's not like a class and educational signifier. Right, right. Whereas her, here it is. Her life was this kind of bricolage of putting all these things together. And, you know, Americans are people who have to try But that's the genius of America. And yes. that's the thing that America has always possessed because it possessed a sense of itself. And I think that's what we're losing now. So you went from writing a biography, very well-received biography, uh, of someone who is not that well-known in the English-speaking world, to writing a biography of perhaps the best-known writer in the English-speaking world. How did that come about, and what kind of misgivings, fears, doubts did you have before you took on this assignment? Because I gather it was really an assignment. It was sort of an assignment, yeah. Well, the one did lead to the other. I wrote about Clarice Lispector, and that book was a labor of love and a labor of non-payment for many years. <laughs> um, I got paid $8,500 for five years of work on that. You know, the things we do when we're in our 20s. I was actually in Rio at the time that I got an email saying that this jury of peers or somebody had decided that I was the person that should write about Susan Sontag. And I hesitated. I mean, you asked if it gave me pause. Of course it gave me pause. I mean, first of all, I wasn't somebody that had thought of myself as a biographer, and I still don't, although technically I am a biographer because I've written now two biographies. That wasn't necessarily my interest per se, but I was fascinated coming out of the Clarice book by this world of the great intellectual woman. I thought there was this incredible amount. It was kind of tweeted about. You know, there's all these gestures to this and that, but actually... Even Sontag, who was so famous, wasn't that well-known in a sense. I've talked about her work, but even the sense of the world that she came from was already disappearing by the time I started this book. She had only been dead for, what, she'd been dead for eight years, 
And already she was somebody from another time. And at the same time, I, because I'm uh, from New York in a certain way, and I'm from the book world, the literary world, I know the dangers of Sontag. I know the stories about Sontag. I know the fraughtness of her. And I also know just in general with biographies, biographies are a very difficult thing. It's like a marriage. It is like an arranged marriage because you start off thinking, wow, she's so interesting and fabulous and admirable. And sometimes those marriages work out and sometimes they don't because sometimes you don't want to live with this person anymore and you're living with them every single day. But then I thought that Sontag was just, there was so much to be interested in. There was so much to be shocked about. There was so much to learn from her that I did it. I don't think I hesitated that long. This assembly of personages makes it sound like the French Academy or something like that. Who were these people who decided? So it was David Reef, her son, Jonathan Galassi, her publisher, Andrew Wiley, her agent, Judith Thurman, writer. I just got this email. I was very surprised by it. I think that if you're an American who is interested in literary culture, it's a huge honor um, and a responsibility. The idea of looking for someone to write a biography of a figure like Sontag, who had already had one mediocre biography written of her during her life, clearly was not going to want for a biographer. What was the motivation, the cultural motivation? It's interesting. I've never thought about that. I really don't know. I guess the assumption that this is going to happen anyway, and so you want the right person to do it. It's clear there will be more biographies written of someone like Sontag. Mm. There will be a multi-volume unreadable but comprehensive <laughs> biography, right, right, probably right, drawing right. on all your notes, but right. doing fewer interviews him right. or herself. Uh, I, I have no doubt about that. But your 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 attitude towards biography is very different. Even the, So do you, you say you now you've written two biographies, so you are in, in some sense a de facto biographer. Is that your self-conception? Are you now looking for a new biography? No, it's not my self-conception. My self-conception is just as a writer period. And no, I don't want to do another biography. I think that biographies are very difficult and long. And, and you know, seven years on a book, it's just a really long time. And it's so all-consuming. And I feel that creatively, I'd really like to just stretch my legs in some other direction. I'm not sure yet. You have to like people and you have to like that kind of thing. And I definitely do. And biography is the least lonely form of, of writing, I think, because there's so many people. And on the other hand, some people are too much, you know, so you're constantly with these voices in your head and people very keen to present themselves in a certain way in your book. And then you're inevitably going to disappoint people because you know the real story and you know the bullshit line that everybody's taking about something. And if you do all these interviews, you figure it out pretty quick unless right. you're completely him, right. You know, you figure out what line is being preached right now. Knowing that you were the person and had this sort of inside story, did you find people asking you questions? I think about the one reference to the psychoanalyst or the therapist who, who talked about how many different patients he had had complaining about Susan Sontag. Right. You were sort of that figure in a way. Did you ever yeah. have people say, what did you think of me or why did she treat me oh this God. way? Well, all the time. I mean, you do become a kind of father confessor who takes upon himself the sins of the world. Sontag was a figure. I didn't have that with Clarice, you know, because Clarice was somebody who was pretty much universally loved and respected. Sontag had scads of ex-friends. She had millions of ex-lovers. She had a past, often unresolved. Because she was such a magnetic person and she was such an important person for people, they really did think like, 
why did she not call me back in 1967? And the weird thing is I actually knew. Yeah. Because if you've done enough research, you're like, oh, well, either she was maybe she'd moved to Sweden that month or, or, or maybe even more awkward. Like, I know she really didn't like you because she told people, how do I get rid of so-and-so? Did you tell them? That's a good question. Did I tell them? Um, no. I try to be tactful. I try to be respectful of people's feelings, which is such a funny thing. But Sontag was an open wound for some people. People never got over her, which I think is great. I mean, as a writer, she's a, she is, she's such a great character because she leaves such a deep impact on people. Sometimes you interview people and they say, oh, yeah, she came here on February 23rd and we had a nice lunch and that's it. You know, that, that's why you flew to Taipei to hear that story, you know. I don't think it's necessarily my role, but I do challenge people. There's a lot of people that were really interesting and had their lines that I knew were not true. And that's when I push back a little bit. And Saying, I know, you know, I know because of what's in the journal and therefore. Yeah, I try not to be like Perry Mason. Where were you on the night of the 23rd brandishing a bar bill from Portland, Oregon, when you claimed you were in Seattle? It's interesting, though. You don't have to push people very hard to get a reaction. You can say, oh, that's interesting. I heard you were in Seattle. And some people will just lose it and start ranting. And that's hilarious. I mean, it's kind of. You do feel like Hercule Poirot or something. But it's not that I'm trying to unravel the truth in that detective way. I'm just trying to get at the emotional core of things. Is there a biography or biographer who has been particularly influential in your thinking about how one composes a life? Yeah. The one figure that I really love and I think is not read anymore, perhaps, is Fawn Brody. Fawn Brody, F-A-W-N was um, from one of the leading Mormon families of Utah, uh, married a Jewish guy, taught at UCLA. And she wrote a biography that I read many years ago called No Man Knows My History, which was a life of Joseph Smith. She was writing as a former Mormon, but as a sort of ethnic Mormon. And she knew that Joseph Smith had basically made all this up. And yet she loves him in the same at the same time because she sees that he sort of accidentally creates this whole people and this church and this thing that he was a kid from upstate New York who was trying to get rich off of selling stuff at the county fair. And she was excommunicated from the biographical world in about 1971 or 72. She did a biography of Jefferson, which she claimed that he had all these black children, which is now such a commonplace. But um, that was shocking at the time. And she sort of never ate lunch in this town again. I admired her mix of respect for somebody with calling all their bullshit. I thought that was great. One of the criticisms that came through of your book was indeed this idea that you didn't love her. Right. And in fact, Vivian Gornick went so far as to say that that was sort of the, the first condition for a great biographer was to be in love with the person you write about. She oh, wrote... Uh, Moser doesn't love her, and this absence of emotional connection poses a serious problem for his book. I'm just sitting here thinking, would she extend that principle to my future biography of Ava Brown? You know, <laughs> or I mean, what is it's it's a completely embarrassing thing for her to say, I think, because first of all, it's not true. I know more about my emotions. I mean, it's funny to have that degree of of psychology read into my work along with an accusation that I'm reading psychology into somebody else's work. You know, this is what you get into the different mirrors of projection that get projected onto Sontag and then also onto me. 
the fact is, I do love Sontag. I mean, that's one of the things that it almost hurts my feelings. It's like saying you don't like your mom or something. I do not like Sontag always. And nobody who loved her did. She was a very difficult figure. Trying at times to love somebody who is abusive and who is dishonest and who does all these things, it's hard. But I don't think that as an adult, it's hard to separate loving somebody from always liking somebody. Just because you love somebody doesn't mean you approve of everything they do. You know, in fact, to me, Sontag's an incredibly tender, touching, warm figure. I understand her far too well to judge her in a negative way. The other criticism sort of follows from that, which is that people object to the way you analyze her, that you put too much stock perhaps in her diaries and her self-criticism, and that you put too much emphasis on her relationship with her mother, who was by all accounts distant, alcoholic, narcissistic, and finally that you put too much stock in her own struggles with her sexuality. Well, okay, so that's three different things. The first one is psychology. Well, I will remit us to that quote from somebody else's shrink. A patient started talking about Susan Sontag, and the shrink started laughing. And he said, you have no idea how many people laid on that couch and talked about Susan Sontag. I mean, Sontag was somebody who fascinated people psychologically because they really didn't understand her. She was really a person of, of all these climactic extremes. I do believe in psychological progress. I think that in a lot of ways, we do understand a lot more about psychology than we did 50 or 100 years ago. Sontag's first book is about Freud. Sontag's interest in psychology and, 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 um, and in psychoanalysis and these questions is very, very deep. So I don't know why that would be something that people object to. I mean, she was completely obsessed with her mother. This is something that she says on every page of the hundred volumes of her journal. And the relationship of this gay girl to her prissy mother trying to get her to put on mascara and stuff. I, I sort of love that. Um, again, you know, these are things that there are so many approaches you can take to a person. And I did choose to write about her sexuality because it was clear to me that that was a very fraught thing. And it was something that Susan herself did not understand. And it's something that people at the time didn't understand. One of the legacies, I think, of Sontag, if we talk about her intellectual legacy, is how are gay people seen? How were they seen? What was it like to be gay? What was it like to live through the closet and McCarthyism? And then what was it like to live through Stonewall and gay liberation and then AIDS? This is a great epic story, I think. People reacted to it in different ways. I don't think it's a judgment. Uh, I do think it is a judgment of society that did not let gay people live normal lives in a time where people are so despairing about everything. I think it's also one of the bright spots in society is that it's really changed a lot. And um, being gay is now so boring that it doesn't even, it's like being Jewish. It's like stopped being <laughs> counted as a minority, you know? <laughs> I mean, at least for gay guys, it's like, uh, you know, nobody even notices or cares, but boy, did they. I think it's quite moving to see how much she struggled with her sexuality. And I think that some of the, I mean, the only, the only people that, 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 that made any sort of negative comments about my interest in her sexuality and, and in homosexuality in general uh, were very old people who still think it's kind of Embarrassing. Well, it's not appropriate. 
I feel like she was a figure in American culture that lets that that holds so many different impulses in it that it's a very fruitful way to really use her to get at all those issues. I feel she is a mirror of American society and culture in a way that I kept thinking during the seven years that I worked on this, who else would be this interesting and have this many footholds in this many worlds and be able to address so many issues? People always say Susan and, and Clarice Lispector are both Jewish women writers, you know, which is, so are you really interested in Jewish women writers? And I say, no, I'm really interested in metaphor. And how language interacts with reality. And through those two very different figures, you can see that. And Sondag has a lot to say in, in, in her life and in her work about how images, photographs, metaphors create and, and pervert people and, and lives and, and societies and wars, illnesses. That's a subject that once you step back from the passing moment of the Vietnam War, of AIDS, of communism, of whatever, these things that come and go in her life, that's the real legacy of her for me is not telling you what to think, telling you how to think. And I don't think there's another figure that incorporates so many of those elements. I really don't. I'm still waiting for somebody to tell me who is more interesting than Susan Sontag in general. But even on that level, philosophically, I think that that legacy can get forgotten. Uh, where are these figures? Sonny Maida is gone. Bob Silvers is gone. Roger Strauss is gone. These are all figures that in their different ways, we did look to, not because we agreed with them, but because they held out some sort of model of a thinking person. I don't see those people now. And I really, you know, when you look at criticism now and you look at Twitter and you look at all these people shouting at each other, they shouted at each other too. But I think there was a, there's now a lack of a common culture that makes it very hard to even know what anyone's talking about. And that's why I was really hoping, I still do hope, that people who want a grounding in what culture is, what books should I read, what movies should I see, that they'll read my book and start off with this open door. Thank you very much, Ben. It was sure. great talking to you. No problem. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. This episode was produced by Micah Hazel. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.